You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. Matthew chapter 15. If you would please join me in turning there. Matthew chapter 15. And this morning we have come to the 29th verse. Matthew chapter 15. And we read verses 29 to 39. The Word of God says this, And departing from there, Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee. And having gone up on the mountain, He was sitting there. And large crowds came to Him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others. And they laid them down at His feet, and he healed them. So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the crowd because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I do not want to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where would we get so many loaves in this desolate place to satisfy such a large crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven and a few small fish. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and the fish. And giving thanks, he broke them and kept giving them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, seven large baskets full. And those who ate were 4,000 men, besides women and children. And sending away the crowds, Jesus got into the boat and came to the region of Magadan. Let's go to our God together in prayer and ask His blessing on our time and His Word. We do rejoice, Lord, in the truth that the Son of God came into the world, born of a virgin, taking to Himself an additional nature, a sinless human nature, that He might live for His people and die for His people, be raised for His people and forever save His people from Your wrath, from our sins and from what our sins deserve. So that we, the church, we, your people, gather together today, a forgiven people, a blood-bought people, a forever secure people, a free people. We give you praise and thanks for your great work of salvation and for your great work of salvation in our own lives. We ask your blessing now upon the time of preaching. Lord, would you help me? We study, we prepare, but only you can make a sermon live, and we pray that today, Lord, you'd be at work in and through the preacher, and Lord, you would be at work in us as we listen, because you alone can teach us, unless your Spirit teaches us we don't learn. And so we ask that you'd be at work in our hearts as we hear today. The result would be your church is edified in every way that we need, correction as well as encouragement, tearing down and building up. We ask for this. We also are aware that 
Many will hear me who don't yet know you. And as has already been mentioned, Lord, what a a great thing it would be if today would be the day of life for them, if they would hear and repent and believe and be saved. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the previous section, we saw last Lord's Day our Savior encounter a Syrophoenician woman, a Canaanite woman. We saw and said that he dealt with her in a way that many would find offensive. Yet, in his perfect wisdom, he also dealt with her in a way that magnified her genuine faith and magnified the beauty of her humility and magnified his willingness and his joy in helping her. As he dealt with her, he made a distinction between Israel and the nations. This is what was offensive. He used an illustration about children and family pets, the dogs, how it's improper to give the food that is set apart for the children to the dogs. And so in that illustration, Israel is depicted as a child, child of God. The nations, the outsiders, the Gentiles, pictured as the dogs, this would be offensive. And yet she didn't find herself offended. Rather, she embraced the illustration and pleaded for mercy by saying, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. By the will of God, the Son of God must first be presented to Israel. There's an order in the earthly ministry of Jesus. The king of the Jews will first be presented to the Jews before he's presented to the world. The signs that he performs, even the messages that he preaches, are designed for a people who are prepared to recognize those things. The Old Testament Scriptures prepared the people to recognize their Messiah, to recognize the signs, to recognize what he's preaching. So there's a distinction made between Israel and the rest of the world. Having acknowledged that, it would also be easy to misunderstand what that means, the significance of that. Are we to conclude that the Son of God came into the world caring for Israel in a primary sense and then caring for the nations in a secondary sense? I mean, He really cared about the Jewish people, but He didn't really care so much about the rest of the world. Is that what we are to conclude? Well, the answer, of course, is no. It's true to say, the Bible says this, that there is a sense in which Israel has been loved by God uniquely. In a national sense, with respect to national promises and a national purpose, with respect to the particular blessings and promises that were made to that nation, Israel was uniquely loved, is uniquely loved. Deuteronomy 10.12 says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set His heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. There in Deuteronomy chapter 10, Israel is exhorted with the knowledge that God has loved them in a unique way. Romans 3.1, Paul, I mean, now he's writing the book of Romans 
on the other side of the cross, on the other side of the resurrection. As a new covenant believer, and in Romans 3.1 he writes, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. He doesn't say there's no advantage. I mean, now that Christ has come and died and been raised, ascended into the heavens, coming again, there is no advantage. That's not what he says. He says much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What a unique advantage that was. And then in Romans 9, Paul, grieving over the lost condition of the vast majority of his kinsmen according to the flesh, writes in the first verse of Romans 9, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were a curse and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Who are you talking about, Paul, when you talk about your brothers in this case? He goes on to say, my kinsmen according to the flesh. And then he speaks in the present tense. He says, they are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So there is a sense in which Israel is uniquely loved. But in the sense of God's plan to save individuals, Christ coming into the world to save His sheep, to forgive sins, to bring into being the new humanity, a redeemed people, a redeemed family, God's plan has always embraced the whole world. Jesus came into the world loving you and me, Gentile believers, just as much as He loved Jewish believers. This is a very important question for us to be clear about. Does the fact that God had an order for the earthly ministry of His Son, the ministry of the Messiah, does that order indicate the restriction of the scope of His ministry? Because He begins in a certain place and begins with a certain people, did that indicate that the results, the effects of what He came into the world to accomplish would somehow be restricted? Of course, the answer is no. Just because God begins in one place or with one people, or because He has unique elements of what He's doing that center on a particular people, that does not indicate that that's all that He's concerned about, or that that's where His work will end. And the verses we come to today are such a beautiful reminder of that. Our text makes unmistakable what John 3.16 declares, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. God loves the world. How does Christ demonstrate that in our text? How does the Holy Spirit make this clear in our text? Well, what we're going to see is Jesus doing for Gentiles exactly what He's done for Jews. In a Gentile region, we see His mercy upon the Gentile peoples. We've already seen this, again, with the Canaanite woman, and the context is so beautiful, it makes this so clear, because immediately after how he deals with her mercifully, now we see him dealing with Gentile multitudes mercifully.
This morning we'll look at our verses under two main headings, and then I have five points of application after we've looked at these two main points. Point number one, behold the mercy of Christ for the healing of Gentiles. Behold the mercy of Christ for the healing of Gentiles. Look at verse 29. And departing from there, Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee, and having gone up on the mountain, he was sitting there. And large crowds came to him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others. And they laid them down at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. To recognize what Matthew is presenting to us, we've got to pay attention to where Jesus has traveled. Matthew describes it in sort of a benign way. It says, and departing from there, Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee. Mark makes more clear for us exactly where he went. Mark 7.31 says, Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. So last time we saw him in Tyre and Sidon, now we're told he leaves Tyre, goes to Sidon to the north, makes his way back down to the Sea of Galilee, travels around the north end of the Sea of Galilee, down to the southeast side of the lake, in a region known as the Decapolis. This is a region that was predominantly Gentile in terms of its population. Called the Decapolis because of the ten cities that belonged to that region. It was really sort of an independent region. Heavily influenced in Greek culture. David May says of the Decapolis, a term meaning ten cities that designates a group of Hellenistic cities predominantly located on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River, corresponds roughly with the Old Testament region of Gilead and includes what is today northwest Jordan and southern Syria. Although the term Decapolis implies ten cities, the number fluctuates in lists from ancient authors. The cities were not a unified confederation, but they shared close geographical ties, Greek cultural orientation, and economic and trade interests. Leon Morris comments, Mark 7.31 says plainly that Jesus came to Decapolis, Gentile country to the east of the sea. Matthew's reference to the God of Israel, verse 31, looks like the utterance of Gentiles. We should probably understand that Jesus came down from Phoenicia to the eastern side of the sea, thus remaining in Gentile territory. This means a continuing work among Gentiles, including healings and the feeding of the 4,000. The context, he deals with this Syrophoenician woman. Now we find him in the Decapolis. The context indicates he's dealing with Gentiles. There are other indications as well. You heard Leon Morris refer to it, verse 31, after the miracles occur, after the people are healed, the Bible says they glorified the God of Israel. D.A. Carson said the clause, they praised the God of Israel, uses language that only Gentiles would have used for praising God. And then you'll notice in verse 37, after Jesus feeds the multitudes and they pick up the leftovers... It says there were seven large baskets full. Look up to chapter 14 for just a moment, verse 20. 
The Bible says, and they all ate and were satisfied. They picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 full baskets. The word for basket there in Matthew 14, 20 is kafinas. Lexicon has this, a hand basket, particularly a, a wicker basket typically used by Jews for carrying along Levitically clean food. So a small basket, you would carry a, a day's sort of food in it, and this is what the Jewish people were known for using. But if you look back in chapter 15, the word for baskets in verse 37, sporis is the word. Carson says the foridas were woven of rushes and used for fish or other food. Rawlinson cites juvenile to the effect that at least in Rome, Jews commonly used coffinus to carry kosher food. If so, the use of spuridas in this setting may imply that the locale and its people were non-Jewish. So you have a different word for basket here. And this, by the way, is a larger basket. In Acts 9, this is the kind of basket that they put Paul in and lowered him over the wall when his life was in danger. So this is a basket large enough to hold a man. So the first thing we see is the region, and the region cries out to us, these are Gentile people. Even so, the reputation of Jesus, we saw this with a Canaanite woman. I mean, somehow the word is getting out about him. And in verse 30, you see what kind of reputation he already has. Verse 29, he goes up, having arrived in this region, he goes up on the mountain. He's sitting there. What happens? Verse 30, and large crowds came to him, bringing with him those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others. And they laid them down at his feet and he healed them. His arrival makes news Multitudes of people come to him and they're bringing the people they care about who need help. Loved ones, friends, acquaintances, people who have great physical needs. Matthew specifies the kinds of needs that were present. Those who were lame, people who couldn't walk. Those who were crippled, people who were handicapped in other ways, perhaps even in some cases missing limbs all sorts of deformities, people who could not see, the blind, people who couldn't speak, the mute, and many, many other kinds of illnesses, sicknesses, maladies, and many others, he says, and they lay them down at the feet of Jesus. They just want to get them before the Lord. They do whatever is necessary to get their loved ones before the Lord Jesus Christ. They cast them down at His feet. And the power of God is on display I'm always amazed at how matter-of-factly the text says, and he healed them. I mean, just think about the list of physical needs we've just read, and the Bible says, and he healed them. And the people are astounded, so the crowd marveled. And what they saw was truly astounding, not since the world began and not since Jesus left the earth has the world ever seen this. Imagine being there that day. You bring your loved one. You bring your friend. You bring your acquaintance. And when they arrived, they couldn't talk. Verse 31, but now the mute are speaking. And the people who were crippled had deformity. As I said, maybe in some cases even were missing limbs. Now they're whole and healthy. They're restored. I mean, this is a creation kind of miracle you're witnessing. And the people who couldn't walk are walking, and the people who couldn't see are seeing. Power of God on display. 
and it all results in praise. Verse 31, and they glorified the God of Israel. Here's the point. The same kind of healing that you've seen throughout the ministry of Jesus up to this point in Jewish regions with Jewish people, the very same miracles are being performed in a Gentile region with Gentile people. And the list of physical needs is given by Matthew because it is meant to call to our minds Old Testament Scripture. Remember, Matthew's writing for a a primary Jewish audience. The Jews would read this, and what would come to their mind would be Old Testament promises regarding the future kingdom. For example, Isaiah 29, 17. Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field? And the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. And the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless shall come to nothing. And the scoffer cease. And all who watch to do evil shall be cut off who by a word make a man out to be an offender and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate and with an empty plea turn aside him who is in the right. Therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall no more be ashamed, no more shall his face grow pale. But when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. Those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding, and those who murmur will accept instruction. Do you know what is coming, Israel? So behold the mercy of Christ in the healing of Gentiles. Second point, behold the mercy of Christ for the feeding of Gentiles. And this, to my mind, is where it becomes so apparent that what you have here is a Gentile multitude that Jesus is dealing with. Because you have another account of a miraculous feeding of multitudes of people. Now, I want you to remember something that John writes. He says, if you were to try and record everything that Jesus said and did, the world could not contain the books. If you think that in the record of the evangelists, you have all the miracles that Jesus ever did, think again. It's just a sampling which, by the way, means it is a strategic sampling. What is given to us is given to us on purpose. It is necessary for us to get the picture. So why would you record a miraculous feeding of a multitude in chapter 14 and turn around in the very next chapter and tell about another one? It can't be the nature of the miracle because we've already seen the nature of the miracle. We don't need to see it again. We know that Jesus can feed multitudes with nothing. So why do we have it again in chapter 15? I think the answer is because now you have a different multitude. In chapter 14, you have a Jewish multitude. In chapter 15, you have a Gentile multitude. In fact, these two chapters are so alike that liberal commentators think that all you have is is a repeating of the same miracle. And this indicates the imprecision 
of Scripture because in one case it's 5,000, in the next case it's 4,000. Matthew's just giving us another account of the same miracle. Not so. It is so clear, this text is so clear that you have an additional miracle, something different. In fact, let me give you a list of some things that are different and then some things that are the same and it's tremendously important that they are the same. Let's begin with the differences. First of all, you have a different season being described, a different season. In this part of Palestine, things would green up in the spring and by early summer, it was barren. And in Matthew chapter 14, verse 19, the Bible says, Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. In the first miracle, Jesus instructs the crowds to sit down on the grass. Look at the 35th verse in our text. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground which may well indicate there is no grass. Now they're sitting down on the bare earth. Why? Because this probably happened a few months later. And so in the first scene, you're in the spring and there's grass present. In the second scene, you're later in the year and there is no grass there. They sit down on the ground. You have a different season. You have a different need. Matthew 14, verse 15, Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. And the day is now over, send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. The, the crowds have been with Jesus all day. The disciples are concerned because they haven't eaten for a day. Look at the 32nd verse in our text. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the crowd because they've remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. First miracle, they've been with Jesus for a day. Second miracle, they've been with Jesus for three days. You have a different provision that Jesus works with. Matthew 14, verse 17, they said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. Matthew 15, verse 34, and Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said seven and a few small fish. So you have a different provision that he's working with. You have a different surplus different leftovers. Matthew 14, 20, and they all ate and were satisfied and they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. 12 of these small baskets is what they had left over. Verse 37 in our text, and they all ate and were satisfied and they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, seven large baskets full. Seven of these baskets large enough to hold a man. The surplus is different. You have a different number of people. Matthew 14, 21, and those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Matthew 15, 38, those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. 5,000 men in the first scene, 4,000 in the second. Which, by the way, as you know, I mean, it's an amazing number of people that were gathered. If you have 4,000 men you could estimate up to 20,000 people. But if you think there aren't two miracles, all you have to do is look at the next chapter. Look at Matthew 16 and look at verse 9. We'll see this tonight. When Jesus reproves his disciples for their slowness, their dullness. Verse 9, chapter 16, Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000? 
And how many baskets full you picked up? Or the seven loaves of the 4,000? And how many large baskets full you picked up? Jesus says, do you not remember the two miracles you witnessed? So this is not just the repeating of the same thing. This is something new. This is something different. But what is the same? This is, as I said, tremendously important. What is the same? What is the same? What is especially emphasized is the compassion of Christ. Matthew 14, 14, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed the sick, healed their sick. He has compassion on them. Matthew 15, look at verse 32. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the crowd. First seen Jesus motivated by compassion, which by the way speaks of, of an internal, the word that she used speaks of an internal moving. I mean, he sees these people, he, he genuinely cares for them. The second scene, you see exactly the same. He cares for the multitudes. And then you have the same signs, healing and feeding. And you have the same kind of meeting of the need because it is abundantly generous. He doesn't just meet the need, he exceeds the need. Not only is it true to say they ate until they were fully satisfied, but after they were fully satisfied, there was more in both cases. In fact, in the second case, there was even more left over. Seven large baskets is more than 12 small baskets. And so we see in a Jewish region with a Jewish multitude, Jesus heals, Jesus feeds. In a Gentile region with a Gentile multitude, Jesus heals Jesus feeds. With the Jewish people, he feels compassion. With the Gentiles, he feels compassion. Jesus loves the world. Let me give you some things to take away as we think about this. I want to mention five. I I know there is more than just this, but these are the things that stand out in my mind I wanted to share with you today. First of all, I want to remind you what what this demonstrates is distinction in ministry doesn't equal restriction of ministry. Distinction in ministry doesn't equal restriction of ministry. I think this becomes very important in what we talk about a lot, what you know I believe the Bible teaches, which is you have a future earthly kingdom coming. Still, it's in the future. Christ is going to return from heaven to earth, and when He returns, there's going to be a thousand-year kingdom set up on the earth. And I believe that in that kingdom, not only is it true to say that everyone who begins in that kingdom will be a believer, but every promise God made to the nation of Israel and everything He said in the Old Testament regarding the nations, all of it is going to be literally fulfilled. These are not things meant to be spiritualized. These are things that are going to to see a literal fulfillment. Now, obviously, it's going to be fulfilled in a believing people. The only Jews that will be present in that kingdom will be those who have trusted in Jesus as Messiah, as Lord and Savior. It's going to be a believing kingdom. But all of the promises made to national Israel will be fulfilled in that kingdom. And what I want to say, and have you hear, is just because there will be those distinctions, it doesn't indicate there will be a restriction of blessing. 
It's not that one rules out the other. It's that blessing is known in both cases. Israel will know the blessing God promised to her and the world will know the blessings God promised when he gave his covenant with Abraham. All of it will be fulfilled. Distinction in ministry does not equal restriction. In fact, I think it it is, it is gloriously beautiful because it indicates God's ability to accomplish everything that He's promised in a way that leaves nothing out. This is our God. And so when Jesus says to the Syrophoenician woman, I have a priority right now. There's something that I've been sent into the world to do in terms of an order and a purpose to be fulfilled. He goes on to grant her desires. And then in, immediately in what follows, you see his love not just for Israel, but for the world. This is our king. And as Gentile people, aren't we grateful that he has loved us like that? But he's not finished with Israel. Read Romans 9 through 11. He's not finished. And everything he's promised will be fulfilled. Second thing we see in, in, in this text, the grace of God always explains the work of God wherever you find it. And this is one of the lessons that Israel, believing Israel, had to learn. That believing Jews had to learn. That God makes no distinction when it comes to man's problem and and man's solution. The problem is sin. The solution is salvation in Jesus Christ. There is no other answer for the problem. And we all have the same problem, Jew and Gentile. All under sin, all deserving of the wrath of God, by nature deserving of the wrath of God, all in need of the Messiah, all in need of the King of the world, the Savior, the Shepherd of the sheep of God. So that when someone is saved, it's not explained by ethnicity, it's not explained by national identity, it's explained by the grace of God. What you see Jesus doing with Jews, you see Jesus doing with Gentiles. And wherever you find believers, Jew or Gentile in the gospel accounts, it is because they have met with the grace of God. It is because of the regenerating power of God. God makes believers. The fall made unbelievers. God makes believers. Peter had to learn this. Remember when he is invited to meet with Cornelius, the Lord sends him there. Acts 10.34, so Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. Do you understand that that lesson that he, he learns through a vision, the Lord was already teaching him in scenes like this, if he was paying attention. Now, we're going to see tonight, these disciples are being regularly reproved for their dullness. They're not getting the message. But the scene was being set right here to learn this lesson. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. As for the word that He sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee After the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. 
They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. This is a lesson of the early church. The the Jewish element of the early church had to learn that salvation is not based on ethnicity or national identity. But the grace of God explains every single believer. John Ryle said, It is grace, not place, that makes people believers. James Montgomery Boyce said, Faith may be found in unlikely places. Already we're beginning to see, even in the gospel accounts, this amazing openness among the Gentile people. In fact, an openness that's not being seen in the Jewish people. Setting the stage for the the era we're living in right now. When God is saving Gentile people in great numbers. But, But again, it's not the end. And He has planned and ordained and put in His Word the truth that there's going to be a great outpouring of salvation upon ethnic Israel before the kingdom arrives. We need to remember this. That only the grace of God explains salvation, not place, but grace explains salvation. We need to remember this when it comes to our own homes. God uses means, the means that He's commanded, the responsibilities He's given to us, they are important, they are vital. God works through them, God uses them. But dear brother, sister, don't ever think that your parenting explains the conversion of your children. God may, no doubt, has used godly parenting to see people converted. I mean, Timothy's reminded of his godly mother and grandmother by Paul. God uses those means. But when one of your children comes to faith in Christ, it is not glory to you, the parent. It is glory to God for His grace and mercy. God saves sinners. And Sometimes that grace is on display in the unlikeliest of places. You see children raised in godly homes who sometimes do not come to faith in Christ. And you see children raised in ungodly homes who are snatched out by the grace of God and made God's own children. The grace of God explains salvation. In this case, I mean, Matthew's wanting us to see something. In this case, these people see what Jesus does And they attribute it immediately to the God of Israel. What he has done is by the power of God, and it's the God of Israel. Verse 31, 
Whereas you have the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees seeing the very same things, and they say he's got a demon. So you have Jewish people, in the case of the Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees, who do not recognize this as being the power of God. You have Gentile people who immediately recognize this the power of God. You have Jewish people fed miraculously. They show up later. Jesus reproves them. They say, he says to them, you're, you're not coming because you saw a sign. You're coming because you ate. Your belly is full. In this case, the people are sticking around for three days. They're not there for food. And he miraculously feeds them. I like what R.T. France said. He said, it is as if he is anxious that Jesus' apparently reluctant response to one Gentile should not be seen as the whole story. The list of complaints cured echoes Isaiah 35, 5, and 6. It is the messianic blessings of Israel in which these Gentiles are privileged to share. God loves the world. Third thing we carry away, God cares about the needs of people. God cares about the needs of people. The compassion of Jesus is mentioned in chapter 14, mentioned again in chapter 15. You can be certain it is mentioned on purpose. God wants us to know that He cares for people, that His Son cared for people. And Jesus cared for all the needs of people. God cares for the whole person. And so should we. Why does Jesus involve his disciples in these miracles? Why does he take their really meaningless provision and use it as he multiplies it? Why does he use his disciples to organize the crowds, have them sit down in this particular number of people in these places? Why does he take what they give him and he breaks it and distributes it and then the disciples go and distribute it? Because not only does Jesus care for people, he's teaching his disciples to care for people. And we're to learn to care for people. John MacArthur said he wanted them to learn the practical as well as the theological reality of his compassion. He wanted them to participate firsthand in God's concern for the daily needs of people as well as for their eternal redemption and physical wholeness because divine compassion embraces every dimension of human need. Close quote. I agree with that. Do you agree with that? Do you see that? That we're meant to care for people in every aspect of man's existence. Jesus cared about man's need in the realm of the body. He healed people. He cared about man's needs in the realm of subsistence. He fed people. But above all, He cared for man's greatest need, and that is the need for salvation. He cared for man's soul. And dear ones, that's what we're to be characterized by. We we care. When people are hurting physically, we should care. When, when people have needs in the realm of, of housing and clothing and food, we should care. But we should never care about those things in a way that would ignore or deny the preeminence of man's greatest need. And that's the need for salvation, the need for the forgiveness of his sins. So when you, when you see a theological emphasis that has no concern about people in, in the other realms of existence, you have a problem. But when you have a, a so-called ministry that focuses on the physical needs of people and has no 
real concern about the spiritual needs of people, you have a major problem. Jesus cared for the whole man. And man's greatest need is salvation. Reconciliation with God. We are ministers of reconciliation. We've been entrusted with the word of reconciliation. We are meant to preach the gospel. And so even during this Christmas season, as you think about people needing clothes or needing food or needing you know, gifts for children or whatever the case may be, and you're giving contributions to this or that, will you contribute to someone's salvation? Will you speak to their spiritual need? Will you, will you bring them the good news of Jesus Christ? God cares about the needs of people. That's good news for us, isn't it? God cares for what it is you're going through. Maybe someone hearing me, hearing me today that your need is in the physical realm. You're sick. Things are really concerning you. Things are weighing on you. God cares. You are not alone in that child of God. Or maybe your need is financial. Maybe your need is material. Somebody, you, you've not even shared it with someone else, but you're concerned about how you're going to make it to the next month. Do you know God cares? Jesus wasn't going to send these people home in a way that they might faint on the way. He was going to take care of them. And he, he told us in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, don't you know, if God cares for the birds of the air and the grass and the field, how much more does he care about you? Oh, you have little faith. Don't you know he knows and he cares? But above all, he cares about the condition of our soul. He cares about how we're doing spiritually. Even after having saved us, he cares then about how we're doing as one of his children. How are we doing spiritually? Which brings me to a fourth point. Distinction in ministry doesn't equal restriction of ministry. The grace of God always explains the work of God wherever you find it. God cares about the needs of people. Fourth, this is a sad thing to take away, but it's something we must not miss. People often care more about their physical needs than their soul. Okay, So we've talked about how we're to care for others. I don't just care about your physical needs. I care about your soul. But now what we're talking about is what do you care about? What do you most care about with respect to yourself? Are you more concerned about your physical needs or are you more concerned about your spiritual needs? Multitudes of people make their way to Jesus. Have you ever stopped to think about what that really looked like? If anybody has a loved one who struggles to get around, you know how long it takes to go anywhere. You don't resent that. You're thankful that they're with you. But it's just a practical reality. It's difficult to get out, move around, get places if they're restricted physically. Can you imagine a day in which there's no transportation by car and you have people who are lame, they can't walk. You have people who have other physical problems, some blind, etc. How do you get them to Jesus? What kind of an effort does it take to get them there? And then ask yourself, why do you want them there? And the answer is because you want them to be physically well. You want them to be physically healed. What drives that effort, what drives that sacrifice is the physical need. Just watch what people will sacrifice for what they want in the physical realm. But then sadly, watch what kind of little or no effort is put forth when it comes to the spiritual realm. 
Think about your own life. Think about the effort you put forth for your job. Think about the sacrifice and the effort you put forth for your hobbies or your child's sports or some other thing. And then take an honest look. This is not to condemn. This is to exhort. Take an honest look at the effort you put forth when it comes to your soul. I forget where I saw it, but a meme of some sort that said, you're going to suffer for Jesus in a prison? You won't even come to church when it rains. I mean, that it's telling, isn't it? What can stop us in the spiritual realm versus what we will go through in the physical. J.C. Ryle said this, Let us, however, not forget that our souls are far more diseased than our bodies. And let us learn a lesson from the conduct of these people. Our souls are afflicted with an illness far more deep-seated, far more complicated, far more hard to cure than any ailment that attacks the body. They are, in fact, plague-stricken by sin. They must be healed and healed effectually or perish everlastingly. Do we really know this? Do we feel it? Are we alive to our spiritual disease? Alas, there is but one answer to these questions. The bulk of mankind do not feel it at all. Their eyes are blinded. They are utterly unaware of their danger. For bodily health, they crowd the waiting rooms of doctors. For bodily health, they take long journeys to find purer air. But for their soul's health, they take no thought at all. Happy indeed is the man or woman who has found out his soul's disease. Such a person will never rest till he has found Jesus. Troubles will seem nothing to him. Life, life, eternal life is at stake. He will consider everything a loss that he may gain Christ and be healed. Close quote. It's true, isn't it? Crowd the waiting rooms of doctors. And you always wait an hour, right? Because you want to be healthy. But do you understand, has the Lord graciously shown you the disease in your soul that you would seek the great physician for an effectual healing, which is not only the forgiveness of your sins, but the transformation of your very nature. Oh, Lord, what I need is to be made a new creation. Last thought. What do we see in our text? We see God's generosity on display. Because He didn't just meet their needs. In both chapters, He doesn't just meet their needs. He goes beyond their needs. goes beyond their needs. And in this season of giving and receiving from people. May the Lord help us to recognize how much we've received from the hand of our God. He has not just forgiven our sins. He has not just reconciled us to Himself. He has not just unimaginably bestowed upon us the name child of God. But He's given us everything else in addition. If He didn't withhold His own Son in saving us, what will He not give us? This is what Romans 8 reminds us of. What can separate us from God's love in Jesus Christ? We'll just take note of the fact that He gave us Christ. And if He's given us Christ, what will He not give us? We've been saved by the God who is abundant in His generosity to us. 
Grace, grace, and more grace. Where sin is abounded, grace is superabounded. And our life is full of rich blessings from the hand of our God. I've had opportunity recently to meet up, been actually pretty amazing, meet up with some men that I went to high school with. One of them, curious about the faith, asking to sit down and talk about the gospel. The other one has been in ministry. But what a joy to answer the question, so tell me about what life has been like since high school. And to talk about the precious wife the Lord has given me, and to talk about the four children the Lord has given me, and to talk about the nine grandchildren. Number nine is on the way, doing, doing any day. What a joy. And to, and to talk about the fact that they are in this church, and to talk about the congregation the Lord has graciously placed us in and allowed us to serve. To talk about how kind the Lord has been to leave my mother with us and other family members and how God has been gracious to us. What a super abundance of grace has been poured out on someone who deserved hell. You see? Do you, do you see that? How generous our God is so that even in the realm of feeding people, He didn't give them a bowl of porridge and say, there, that's enough. He fed them till they were satisfied and they had leftovers. Both times. Such is God's grace to us. Even in our suffering, dear ones, even where believers are suffering intensely, heaven will reveal God has dealt with us all super abundantly graciously. What a gracious God we serve. And we give praise to the God of Israel. Amen? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for this picture of your love for the world. Thank you for this reminder of your love for us. Thank you for the mercy and the grace that you have poured out upon us in your Son, our King, our Shepherd, our Lord, our God, the Lord Jesus Christ. I do pray for anyone hearing me who doesn't yet know him, Lord, may you grant them even this day a broken heart over their sin, an understanding of the disease of their soul, an understanding that their greatest need is not in the material realm but in the spiritual realm. And Lord, may they look in faith to your Son and be saved. And may we, your people, by your grace, recognize what our priority should be. You embrace the whole man. You embrace all of our lives. You care about every aspect of our lives. And you've, you give us things richly to enjoy that encompass every aspect of life. And yet, Lord, above all, what must be preeminent is the condition of our soul. Lord, would we never lose sight of that. And thank you that everything we need, everything we could ever need, You've given us in Jesus so that our sufficiency is found in Christ. We give you praise today in His name, in Jesus' name. Amen.